Hi everyone, welcome back to China in the Americas. The hearings for the extradition of Meng Wanzhou concluded this week in British Columbia, and this case really ushered in a deep freeze between Canada and China, to the point where everything else started to deteriorate as a result of it. In fact, this year the Chinese ambassador to Canada was on a TV program in Canada where he explicitly stated that the warming of Canada-China relations could not proceed without the freeing of、uh, Madame Meng. And I think this interview was so stark that I'm going to play a clip from it right now. I wonder if I could start by asking you why do you think the relationship between our two countries is so bad right now? I think it's very clear that from the very beginning we believe that the incident of Madame Meng is the main obstacle between the, our two countries, the most difficult issue. And because the United States instigated this political incident, and the purpose was try to bring down Huawei. And unfortunately, the Canadian side was involved in that. It took actions to detain Madame Meng while she broke no Canadian laws at all. And I would like to tell you that for all those countries which have signed the treaties of extradition with the United States, many of them, but only Canadian side took the action. So that's why we urge the Canadian side to take resolute. Measures to release Madame Meng as soon as possible. So, do I hear you saying? Do I to China? Do I hear you saying that if if Canada somehow arranged to have Madame Meng released from her home arrest, that relations between our two countries would immediately improve? As we have been suggesting, you know that the release of Madame Meng and her safe return to China will certainly create favorable conditions for our bilateral relationship. To be back on track, and to discuss the importance of this case, among other topics of China-Canada relationship, we are joined today by Professor Gordon Holden, who is the Director Emeritus of the China Institute of the University of Alberta. Previously, he served twenty-two years in the Canadian Foreign Service. With posting in Havana, Warsaw, Hong Kong, Beijing, and he was the executive director of the Canadian Trade Office in Taipei. He was also the director general of the East Asian Bureau for the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade before joining the University of Alberta. And just to jump right in, where does Canada's relationship with China stand right now, given the Manamong case? Well, the Meng Wanzhou case has really reduced the Canada-China relationship substantially. Even at the time of Tiananmen, when I was in government, the damage to the relationship was modest compared to the outcome of Meng Wanzhou and the subsequent arrest of the two Michaels. And there's particular reasons for this. Now, first, Meng Wanzhou is a super high-profile. Chinese individual, the daughter of the founder of Huawei, China's most high-profile international company,、uh, she is in effect Chinese royalty. And how, given that high profile, the reaction of the Chinese people 
and of course its government and party for that matter, has been extraordinarily negative. Now the genesis of this is important as well and is part of the problem and perhaps part of the solution. Canada was responding to an extradition request by the United States related to the alleged role of Meng Wanzhou in circumventing U.S. sanctions on Iran. These aren't Canadian sanctions, they are U.S. sanctions. However, the extradition treaty is extremely important to Canada and couldn't be just casually ignored. We have a a, um, 7,000-plus kilometer border. Um, Canadians move, pre-COVID at least, back and forth quite freely. Canada needs to know that we can get our hands on criminals who commit acts in Canada and extradite them to our country. And on the other hand, we don't want to become a dumping ground for U.S. criminals. So that agreement is extraordinarily important. It generally works quite smoothly without any difficulty. However, Meng Wanzhou, clearly a case of huge sensitivity for China, um, put us in the spotlight, in the crosshairs, you could say, of U.S.-China relations. I actually believe that her case is a subset of the U.S.-China tensions related to technological rivalry involving Huawei. It is true that the case is drawing to an end in terms of the court proceedings. However, we may not be through this yet. If the judge decides that Meng Wanzhou is extraditable, we can be fairly confident there will be an appeal process, which in Canada, as one works one's way through the courts, to Supreme Court, this could take months, it could take years. If the judge determines that Meng Wanzhou is not extraditable, I think the, the case would come quickly to an end. I doubt the government of Canada would appeal it. She would disappear. Um, however, another outcome could be that if she's judged to be extraditable, the Minister of Justice has the legal authority under the Extradition Act to simply bring the proceedings to an end, um, as in being in the best interest of Canada. That would be a controversial decision if if, if uh, he chose to make that decision. For number one, um, it would mean that uh, the public would be greatly annoyed. There is broad support for a tough line on this, I think. Not universal, but broad support. Secondly, the U.S. government would be immensely unhappy. So there's no way in this instance we can please both China and the United States. I remember there was a letter, maybe more than one, signed by a hundred or so former Canadian Canadian diplomats, and also included a former Supreme Court justice that was urging the Trudeau administration to reject the case and um, just uh, release Madame Meng. But this was flat out rejected by Trudeau and his administration. So it seems like there is a very big pushback between the, let's say, the Canadian foreign policy elite and the way the administration is handling or handled the Hmong case. There has been. I think that the foreign policy elite of Canada, one could say probably include the, some of the business elite, look at the practical outcome. They look at the fact that this was a breach of U.S., sanctions, not Canadian sanctions, and they see the reduction of the relationship to its lowest level since establishment of relations in 1970. Now, I say its lowest level. In fact, trade has been maintained and has even grown, 
but the political relationship is that slow as that. I was actually invited to join both letters. Um, my I declined to do so because my feeling was, and I think this was the outcome, this would further politicize the issue. And in fact, following the letter signed by some 20 um, former ministers, Supreme Court justice, and people prominent, ambassadors, etc., the Trudeau government, in fact, um, said that they would not go that route. My fear had been that public pressure on the government to uh, use the lever within the Extradition Act to free Madame Meng would, in fact, risk hardening the view of government or pushing them into a negative stance. And that's exactly what happened. That doesn't exclude the fact there's a separate provision after the um, case has been adjudicated by the court in Supreme Court in BC to release her. We'll see what happens in that regard. But either way, it will be controversial. A big impetus for the submission of both of those letters was the arrest of two Canadians in Beijing. As seems to be a direct retaliation for the arrest of Meng Langzhou in Vancouver. So this week, one of the Michaels was sentenced to 11 years in jail in Beijing on espionage charges. So given this development, what is now the sentiment in Canada around this mm-hmm. issue? Well, from the beginning, it has been my view and the view of most Canadians and certainly the government of Canada, including the Prime Minister, that the arrest of the two Michaels on serious security-related grounds was pure retaliation. The timing was immediately suspicious. Um, following just a week after the detention of Madame Meng in Vancouver, um, these two individuals went through some six months of difficult interrogation by the Ministry of State Security. They were then transferred to the aegis of the Minister Ministry of Public Security, um, when they have been in jail ever since. Um, there, I am. The two cases are linked, I believe. There is a um, Chinese refusal to accept this linkage, and except on the rarest occasions, um, they've held that line, and in public they have held that line. Um, but um, I believe that because the sentence, for example, for Michael Kovrig was 11 years and, and um, expulsion from China, deportation, it's my view that it, when Madame Meng has been released, it should be possible, as has happened in another case in the past, for the two Michaels to be deported. Um, no guarantee this would happen right away. There would almost certainly be a delay, partly because the Chinese don't want to acknowledge that the cases are linked to those of Madame Monk. But I believe that this dismissal of the case against her, Madame Monk, or her freedom by the judge, um, or by the Minister of Justice, would set a, a timer ticking that would lead to the two Michaels' release at some point, well short of the sentence which Michael Kovrig has received and Michael Spavor has received, and which Michael Kovrig will almost certainly receive in the coming weeks or months. And currently, so Madame Meng is in Vancouver, I believe. Is she under some kind of house arrest? Or? Well, these terms are not set by the government of Canada. They are set by the 
judge who heard the initial hearing and could be modified by her. Uh, she is technically not under house arrest in that she is free to leave her home, to go to restaurants, invite friends around. She wears an ankle bracelet and has to be accompanied by security firm hired by her, by Huawei, I presume, uh, that accompanies her to make sure that she doesn't depart Canada without the authorization of the court. So it's technically in a house arrest. And this stands in sharp contrast to conditions of the two Michaels who are in a Chinese jail, particularly to the conditions during the first six months when they were under the, the um, control of the Ministry of State Security and being interrogated on a regular basis. I've been in Chinese jails visiting when in government, when our embassy visiting Canadian prisoners. These are not hell holes, as you might find in some third world countries. But on the other hand, these aren't hospitable surroundings, certainly much, much tougher than the conditions that Madame Meng faces. Another high profile issue in Canada, in the Canada-China relationship, was the recent vote in Canadian Parliament to declare the abuses in Xinjiang, China to be genocide. And this, on one side, has its weight of international moral credibility. But on the other side, it seems to me like this is more of a domestic campaigning ploy, in, in some sense. For, so the vote was 266 to 0. But then the Trudeau administration, his cabinet, mostly abstained, and he himself, Trudeau, abstained from the vote. And the opposition parties were much more in favor of passing this resolution. And one of the very outspoken figures of this uh, campaign was Erin O'Toole, who was the opposition leader. I'm wondering if this had more of a domestic campaign route, given that Erin O'Toole is a fairly explicit China hawk of recent in, you know, hawking in North American parlance. And Trudeau is not so much in that, uh, in that mm-hmm. dimension. So, how do you interpret this vote in in Canada? The Canada-China relationship has gradually, even before the detention of Madame Mong and the rest of the two Michaels, become a domestic political issue. That really shouldn't be a surprise with the rising profile of China, the way in which China affects Canada and, and other countries around the world in a more overt fashion than was the case before the Chinese modernization. So like we could perhaps draw a line saying that beginning in 1978 with the adoption of the Chinese reforms under Deng Xiaoping, China's rise economically was rapid, has been rapid, and even more striking in this century. And that has now meant that China issues are national politics in a way that was not the case before. But even until, I would say, the current government, Trudeau government, there was still a considerable amount of bipartisanship. Conservative and liberal prime ministers visited. I took part in many of those visits, either accompanying them from Canada or while hosting them as part of the embassy team in Beijing. Um, But this has broken down. Now, the conservatives, and of course, we're in an election campaign, we'll see who forms the government very shortly, have taken a very strong, even strident anti-China stance. The government under Justin Trudeau, son of the Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, who established relations with China in 1970, has taken a somewhat more nuanced or softer approach 
the public is probably closer to the position of the conservatives from what I could see. doesn't mean that most people will vote for the conservatives on the basis of China policy, but it is a political issue. Our elections, with the rarest exceptions, are decided on domestic issues, not foreign policy issues. But it, but it has complicated management of the relationship now. The genocide issue was led from the China Committee established by the Parliament. It probably would not have been set up if the Liberals had a majority, but they're in a minority position. And the Conservatives had the support of the Bloc Québécois and the NDP in setting up this committee, which is called Many Witnesses. I've appeared before it, and which takes a generally hard line. The genocide issue is a tricky one. From my perspective, there can be no doubt that the position of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang is exceptionally difficult, and it includes elements that you can find within the UN laws that touch on crimes against humanity and genocide, such as um, preventing births um, and on something broadly could be described as cultural genocide, although that term is not one strictly found within the legislation, but where peoples are, as a group, discriminated against in a systematic fashion. The, the complication of alleging genocide pushes it into a the highest degree of crime under the UN Charter. I mean, there is no higher crime than, than, than killing whole groups of people based on discrimination, based on race, um, religion, culture, um, nationality, etc. So the problem there is, do we really want to consider, use that club against China? Or are we more concerned with the genuine uh, human rights violations that are there? I think fair people, and I know people in this country who are scholars of the law and even scholars of human rights law who come to different conclusions in that regard. Um, that there are human rights abuses on, against the Uyghurs? In my mind, no doubt. Does this rise the level of genocide? That's a tough question because you have to then compare it, in my view, against, you should compare it against things like the Holocaust, things like the Rwandan genocide, where you had uh, the slaughter of hundreds of thousands, in some cases millions, uh, an orchestrated campaign. Uh, is that, does the Chinese case rise to that level? That's not, to me, uh, an easy case to make. Um, I, I'm somewhat on the fence in this regard. But to me, a more fruitful approach is to, from the lens of human rights abuses. Do you think that the conservatives will maintain this hawkish stance on China as they campaign further in Canada? And at the same time, China has rhetorically retaliated to this genocide stance by declaring the parliament by pointing out some, you know, some facets of Canadian history. Where, for example, the Sexual Sterilization Act of Alberta was only repealed in 1972. And this act allowed the government in Alberta to sterilize mentally disabled people from having children. And also they tend to point out about the, the, uh, re the residential schools in Canada. It was a system of uh, forced boarding schools that took the children of the native Indians of Canada, took them from their families and their parents and put them in these boarding schools and tried to force them to assimilate into dominant Canadian culture. So they were forced to not learn their native languages. They only spoken English and French. 
And, you know, that was the purpose to make sure they kind of assimilate and move away from the indigenous culture, which is, you know, very similar to what China's stance is in somewhat respects to some of the Uyghur and the forced internment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So what's the response of Canada when China points out these things? Well, I think China was well within its right to raise concerns about Canada's own human rights record. Um, now, Canadians probably in general say, well, this is something of the past. But it's not something of the ancient past. And then, quite frankly, you could look at the United States. Um, while Martin Luther King was still alive, when you had Jim Crow laws uh, that were racially discriminatory across the U.S. South. Uh, of course, the question of racial equity has not been solved in North America generally. I wouldn't argue it's been solved in Canada or in the United States. But um, the Xinjiang case still sticks out to me as an egregious case of human rights abuse. So I would say, and my response would be that, yes, Canadians should and must acknowledge the shortcomings of their own society. Americans the same. Uh, but that shouldn't let China off the hook in terms of its treatment of, of the citizens in, in its own citizens in Xinjiang. Um, so, but if I were the Chinese, I would have made the same the same charge, and I don't blame them. I've heard this in the past, actually, when in government, and we would raise concerns about Tibetans uh, or religious minorities, etc., and they would point out, without with reason, in my view, a less than perfect Canadian experience of human rights legislation. And you don't have to go too far back in Canadian history to find these. And in fact, case can be made that some of these cases, some of these discriminatory dimensions, maybe not de jure as in law, but in practice, um, still exist. So I'm not uncomfortable with having to defend or acknowledge shortcomings in Canada. But my response was and would be vis-a-vis -vis China that does not mean you get a free pass to do things that appear to be um, highly discriminatory against a significant minority population in the autonomous region of Xinjiang. <laughs> and that's a great answer. One I agree for sure. You, you mentioned Tibet. So I was in Ottawa in 2019, and there was uh, a protest, a Tibetan protest in Ottawa. And they were chanting, you know, things like free Tibet. They were also talking about 5G. I'm not sure, not sure why they had 5G in, in, in their chat. But I was surprised that was the case going on in Canada. Mm. So what's the Canadian stance with the Tibet issue? Sure. Well, Tibet has been longer in the public eye in Canada than has been the case of with Xinjiang. I think you could true, say it'd be true of the West in general. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the Tibetan cause has a highly sympathetic individual called the Dalai Lama, uh, who is ancient now and will not be with us, uh, I suspect, for very long. But he is a sophisticated advocate for the Tibetan people. He's a sophisticated religious thinker, and his multiple books are very readable and full of Buddhist wisdom, in my view. Xinjiang lacked that kind of a leader. Secondly, uh, Hollywood has paid close attention to Tibet, particularly certain people like Richard Greer, um, maybe not quite as high prominent now, 
um, they had that advantage. And thirdly, the cause of the Uyghur people and Muslim minorities in China generally suffered particularly after 9-11 because of Chinese charges that this was linked to um, Islamic fundamentalism and hence was a violent movement that had to be stamped out. As often in these cases, there's always a little bit of truth in these charges. It is true that there were people of Xinjiang who left Xinjiang and became involved with the with militants abroad, including even in 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 uh, Afghanistan and elsewhere. Uh, this one could argue that this wouldn't have happened if China had a more forward and accommodating stance, as they did when I first went to Xinjiang in 1983. At that time, the mosques were reopening after a long period of suppression and during the Cultural Revolution. There was a uh, a more forward and open stance. So whether these um, this, this charges were fair or unfair is, is a complicated thing. But in the case of Tibet, um, there is little doubt that Tibetan culture has suffered. Um, the Chinese point out correctly that the people of Tibet are vastly better off in material terms than they were before, and I accept that. This is a, was and has been a very poor part of China for a very long time. However, there has been a lot of movement of Han Chinese into Tibet. The Many of the traditional mosques have been destroyed. Um, even the city uh, of Lhasa has been rebuilt with many, much more of a Chinese aspect. So it's, it's complex, as most things are in China. Um, I don't doubt that in many ways the Chinese approach is, means well, as in fostering economic development. But they have also concerns as well. Separatism is a really bad word for them. We tolerate it in Canada and even allow the election of separatist parties and individuals. In the case of China, this is something which is fundamentally against in the Chinese constitution, against their own uh, their own worldview and national view, and they, they do not tolerate that. And finally, in both Tibet and in Xinjiang, there are strategic concerns. In the case of, of Tibet, not just the territorial integrity, but also the presence of India across the, their, their border, um, where the Dalai Lama also lives. In the case of Xinjiang, bordering multiple sensitive states from Russia to Central Asia, where China has concerns, strategic concerns as well. Shifting gears to real estate, I read a report from the National Bank of Canada that about one third of the Canadian of the Vancouver real estate market in the period that the report covered was Chinese home buyers. That's quite that's quite high. Has that been causing any particular tension in domestic politics in Canada? Well, the investment of the Chinese when the Bank of Canada report came out, that one third Chinese ownership uh, would have been the the new investment, in effect, not the whole existing stock. One of the concerns we've had is that sometimes there's an exaggerated view of the of the role of China or Chinese buyers, which can foster discrimination and an exaggerated view. Now that that investment was very large is not um, is, is certainly true. Um, that numbers those numbers have dropped off to a considerable extent for several reasons. Number one, 
China has brought in um, rules that make it much more difficult now for Chinese firms to make real estate investments abroad. Number two, China, because of capital flight, uh, concerns that individuals as well as private companies will um, use real estate investment abroad to move monies abroad. Sometimes monies that the Chinese government fears may have even been acquired through corrupt means. So that has been a chilling effect. Thirdly, the government of British Columbia uh, has brought in legislation that makes it more difficult uh, for Chinese investors. Here's in the in these in this sense, uh, there is a a vacancy tax, which means if your property is empty, and many of these investors were buying say condos and leaving them empty, just as a potential place for them to use occasionally, or maybe just as an investment hedge, and partly because the value of these properties is often going up far faster than any money they can earn by by renting them. So the the real gain was through the capital appreciation. Now, there's another um, uh, tax which has been imposed for non-residents. This doesn't apply if you're emigrating to Canada or you're a permanent resident, of course, living in Canada. Uh, but if you're making an investment from abroad, not just China, it's not discriminatory in that sense, but it just happens the majority of overseas investors came from Hong Kong and the Chinese mainland, that you're taxed um, at a higher rate than is the case than if you're um, um, a domestic investor or an immigrant or a landed immigrant, etc. So those three things have led to a cooling of Chinese interest in the real estate market, not a collapse, but a cooling of the interest. Investment from Hong Kong has actually ticked up recently because of um, the fears of some Hong Kong people that the new Chinese approach to Hong Kong, national security law, etc., um, may make Hong Kong a less attractive place to live. So that's a separate sub-issue from the broader Chinese interest, which has not evaporated, but it's certainly cooled. Birth tourism. Uh, there are Chinese women that go to Canada to give birth to babies so their babies can have Canadian passports. And there are also companies based in Canada that provide this service. You know, want this new service, set her jobs, <laughs> um, as it were. What's the sentiment in Canada regarding this particular industry? It is an issue. It's an issue which is felt more keenly in, in Vancouver because that's where most of these women are destined. Um, nations generally have one of two approaches to nationality, either by blood, that is through long association uh, with a nationality, and those people can often get nationality very easily, even if born abroad. Another broad approach has been um, simply, and this was the British approach adopted by the Americans and Canadians, if you're born in the territory, you are a citizen. And the approach of most governments in the past has been to try and avoid, with encouragement from international law, avoid creation of a class of, of people who are stateless. And this, while well, you're born in Canada, hence you're a citizen, helps avoid that challenge. Um, but it is controversial. It was probably less of an issue before international air travel became the case. Um, there were probably a few cases of people who would make a long sea voyage from Asia from elsewhere to, to Canada to then give birth and then return home. Um, but there are firms in Vancouver who specialize in this sort of arrangement with and work with local hospitals 
it's been a controversial issue in the United States as well. I don't think we should exaggerate the numbers, but it, it is an issue to be sure. And the, there are some valid concerns from some Canadians that look, um, these people have no substantive attra- attachment to the country. It does mean, however, that they probably get, they will get preferential um, tuition when their children want to go to secondary or post-secondary education, and they will more easily be able to acquire healthcare benefits when at some point if they wish to retire, etc. So it's a fair issue, but it's a complex issue to resolve through the law. Um, and to this point, that door, if you wish, has not been closed. And even if you close it, there will arise this question of statelessness. Uh, what about those people who arrive and are uh, maybe legally, maybe just as visitors, give birth? Um, that will be a, a legacy for the future. Um, it's not going to disappear as an issue, um, but um, I don't think we should exaggerate the numbers either. My final question is based on a a topic that I think will become a much more hot topic in a few years. That's Arctic policy. So because of climate change in particular, the there'll be less ice for more parts of the year in the Arctic Circle. So the Northwest Passage, the Northern Sea Route will become much more passable by cargo ships. Now, what this means is uh, other canal routes, like the Panama Canal, the Suez Canal, would have potentially a lot more competition. So I am actually in Panama, and I'm about 15 minutes away from the Panama Canal. So just obviously, you know, the, the impact of the Americas is quite substantial. So there are some estimates that calculate that the route from the west coast of Canada to, let's say, Europe would be a 1,000 miles less and save about eighty thousand dollars in fuel costs, in if a ship goes through the Northwest Passage instead of the Panama Canal. So you know it's quite substantial, and also because the ship would not have the capacity limitations of the canal, it could potentially carry more cargo to increase the fuel efficiency. So China, to add some more heat into this conversation released a white paper in 2018 where it called itself a near-Arctic state, which is, you know, quite funny, given that China, I think the nearest point to the Arctic is probably a thousand miles away. But you can see why, given that China is increasing its potential, increasing its market share in global trade. I think right now, Chinese companies are the third largest shipping company in the world. And that will, of course, grow over time. So to shore up this competition in the Arctic, China is investing quite a lot or increasing its investment in Arctic regions. And you saw some, I saw some tension when, I think it was last year or 2019, when a Chinese company, Shandong Gold Mining Company, tried to acquire a Canadian gold mining company that's based in the, uh, the Nunavut region in, in Canada, the Arctic, uh, Arctic region. And the Canadian government stopped the transaction stop the transaction from going through. I forget the exact name of the law used, but it was similar to the CFIUS review of, of the US. How do you so how how do you see the trilateral China, US, Canada relationship developing in a few years with the potential of Arctic policy being a new flashpoint 
for the conversation. Well, you raise a, a very interesting issue that involves the Arctic. And China, to my view, not surprisingly, given its return to prominence, I say return to prominence because there are much of human history that has been a major player in terms of trade, although largely confined to, to Asia, or what we now call Asia, um, Eurasia as well, Silk Road, etc. But now uh, China is the leading trading partner for most of the world's countries. Some two-thirds of the world's countries have China as a number one trading partner. So we shouldn't be surprised that um, that uh, the flag follows the, the commerce, as the British said, when they were building the British Empire, where they were where the arrival of the Royal Navy often was preceded by traders and by merchantmen. Um, but given the rivalry between the West and China, particularly the United States and China, um, the approach of Chinese vessels and particularly potentially the Chinese Navy, the Arctic is a point of sensibility. And there are particular concerns that are related to the environment. It is true that the ice is gradually melting, um, but the Arctic region is delicate, both on the land and the sea. Um, its recovery time of its damage would be potentially very long. And this is a, uh, a, this is a challenge. Um, however, I tend to take a, a somewhat more broad viewpoint. Uh, as you noted, the China's number one concern is, is commerce and trade. I would actually argue that the saved mileage um, or, or it would be far greater than a thousand miles saved or a thousand kilometers. I think in some cases, the transit time, say from Shanghai to Rotterdam, could be cut in a third. Uh, now, uh, with huge savings, the it is there have already been Chinese vessels that have transited the northern sea route, which runs above Russia. And because that's not constricted by as many islands and is less ice bound, although vessels still have to be um, hardened steel, double hauled, etc., to be able to cope with the ice, uh, that route will be <clears throat> developed far before the North Sea Passage. The North Sea Passage is <clears throat> um, congested with islands and with ice and will be so for a longer period than the northern passage, but it's a matter of time. Uh, Chinese um, vessels, a Chinese icebreaker research vessel called the Snow Dragon has already transited the Northwest Passage. To the satisfaction of Canada, our permission was sought, something that, but China has not formally acknowledged our sovereignty over the Northwest Passage, nor is the United States for that matter. Trading countries tend to take an expansive view, a deep sea view, one could argue, a blue water view, less of a coastal view. Uh, China is somewhere in between because they're very sensitive about their coasts. If you look back in U.S. history far enough, you'll find that U.S. had a similar huge sensitivity to their own coast and the potential pro and the proximity of the Royal Navy. But as their power grew, as the reach of the U.S. Navy grew, they tended to have a freedom of the seas approach, just as did Britain. My prediction is that China will gradually adopt a somewhat similar view be somewhat less worried about vessels approaching the Chinese coast, at least non-military vessels, and will put an emphasis on navigation of their own merchantmen and naval vessels um, abroad. In the case of investment in China, and this is an interesting one, uh, China's number one interest in the Arctic is trade. I'd argue number two is investment. China has the largest pools of what I call um, uh, long-term patient capital, um, state enterprises, and even private companies that have such 
means at their disposal that they can make very large investments in natural resources, for example, without a need for immediate return. Less of pressure than, than many Western private companies that are judged on their quarterly results. Uh, that's not always often the case for Chinese firms. There was a particular case of Shandong gold mines where the Chinese made a bid for acquisition of this of this firm. It's now been taken by another international consortium. The, under the Canada Investment Act, the uh, government eventually came to a negative decision. Um, they don't have to reveal their reasons. It may have been political, strategic. This investment was a few hundred kilometers to the Northwest Passage. However, from my perspective, it would have meant expanding the jetty that is there now to a dock. It did not mean building a, um, uh, a naval base. And interestingly, Canadians, most of whom have never been to the Arctic, um, almost all have never been to the Arctic, have a very romantic view uh, of the Arctic, pristine, uh, environmentally sensitive. Now, that part is true. Um, the people who live in the Arctic, including the Inuit peoples, tend to be also concerned about things like jobs, economic development, and uh, are, have a more generally open uh, view to foreign investment, including Chinese investment. But in any case, that deal was turned down. There will be others. But right now, with the political tensions between Canada and China and between China and the United States, it's harder to imagine large-scale investment in our Arctic in the current circumstance, even if, in some cases, there's no other party prepared to make that scale of investment. Professor Holden, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much, um, Rashid. It's my great pleasure to take part in your series examining China and the Americas. China is involved in every region of the world now. The Americas are no exception. I think what you're doing with your series is a very important work. Thank you. For just one time, I would take the Northwest Passage to find the hand of Franklin reaching for the Beaufort Sea, tracing one warm line through a land so wide and savage, and make a northwest passage to the sea. Three centuries thereafter, I take passage over land. In the footsteps of brave Kelso, where his sea of flowers began. Watching cities rise before me, then behind me sink again. This tardiest explorer driving hard across the plain. Ah, for just one time. I would take the Northwest Passage To find the hand of Franklin Reaching for the Beaufort Sea Tracing one warm line Through a land so wide and savage And make a Northwest Passage to the sea